The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Oh, how hard the doctrine of merit dies. How proud we are of our works. How blindly we offer our legalities in protest against God's free grace. How loveless we are towards the sinner. This story is the gospel warrant for a great word that was written to the Ephesians. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the weekly radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, How God Evaluates Men. Imagine you have worked faithfully at your job for 20 years, and your company hires a new employee for your department. One month later, you both receive the same amount for your annual company bonus. Would you feel unappreciated, think it was unfair, and become bitter toward your coworker? Or would you be grateful for your company's generosity toward both of you? We must always be on guard against selfish motives and attitudes in every area of our lives, including our service to God. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, and chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, How God Evaluates Men Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy grace and faithfulness. We thank thee that thou art our God, and that thou dost all things perfectly. Thou hast never made a mistake, and we can rest assured that thou wilt bring to pass all that thou hast planned. Bless the truth to each heart in this hour, that we may learn afresh to see all things in the light of thine eternal plan. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How does God evaluate men? In Matthew 19.30, we have the text, But many that are first will be last, and the last first. There are very few people who have ever heard of Georg Philip Telemann. In his time, he was considered to be the most important musician in Germany, if not in Europe. And he left behind him a tremendous volume of musical scores, 40 operas, more than 40 settings of the Passion, 
and more than 600 overtures. By all odds, he was first. Now, when Telemann was four years old, a baby was born in Eisenach, Germany, who also grew up to be a musician. He wrote many works and achieved some fame in his time, but he was little known beyond his small circle. The Oxford Companion says of this second man, after his death, the trend of musical interest was in such a direction as temporarily left his works on one side. And yet this contemporary of the famous Telemann, this man whose music was forgotten for almost a hundred years after his death, was none other than Johann Sebastian Bach. Today we consider him one of the greatest musicians who ever lived, and his name is known wherever there is music in the Western world. Yet the Encyclopedia Britannica tells us that when his son, J.C. Bach, was playing in London years later, everyone knew the son, and report said that his father had been a great musical scholar. Well, here in the musical world is a remarkable illustration of the last who was first and the first last. The last is truly last. You don't even remember the name of the man that I said was greatest in the musical world at the time of Bach, even though I mentioned his name twice. But the one who was really first, really first, is first. The inferior has taken his rightful place among the ignored, and the superior, though ignored while he was alive, is the glory of the world of music. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ announced this principle for the spiritual realm. The last will be first, and the first last. To understand his meaning, we must look well to the fact that the text is repeated with 15 verses in between. Unfortunately, this is largely obscured by the fact that the man who divided the New Testament into chapters took his pencil up at this point and made a mark announcing chapter 20. Actually, two parables are joined to each other by our text, or rather our texts, and we must see their relationship. Let me summarize the narrative. At the end of Matthew 19 and the beginning of chapter 20, the Lord announced that it would be difficult for a rich man to be saved, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. This was said right after the rich young ruler had left Christ sorrowing because he had great possessions. When the disciples wondered at Christ's sweeping statement, he answered that, nevertheless, with God, all things are possible. Peter, with one of his customary bursts of pride and misunderstanding, blurted out that in contrast to the rich young ruler who forsook Christ for possessions, they, the disciples, had left everything to follow Christ, and he asked what they would get in return. Christ announced that they would sit with him in the kingdom, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and that anyone who had left anything for his sake would receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life but that the first would be last and the last first. At this point, there's the chapter division, but we must press on. Chapter 20 begins with the word for or because. Now, no one who sat with me in our Princeton Greek classes will ever forget Professor Machen telling us that we were never to forget the force of gar, the Greek word used to express cause or continuation. It ties the next parable to Christ's statement 
that the first will be last and the last first. This parable is that of the working men who were in the marketplace. The householder went out at an early light and hired some of them at a denarius for the day's wages. Call it ten dollars. At about nine o'clock, he went out and hired still others without fixing their wages. At noon and at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock, still others were approached in the marketplace, and they said that no one had hired them and that that was why they were there. He sent them also into the vineyard. And when the sun was about to set, the laborers gathered to be paid. Those who had worked only one hour came to him first, and he handed each of them a $10 bill. And then he handed each of the earlier group a $10 bill. Finally, those who had worked all day and who had agreed to work for $10 came, expecting him to give them more because they had worked all day. And he handed each of them a $10 bill. And when they grumbled, he said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for $10? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And when Christ had spoken this parable, he concluded, So the last will be first and the first last. One day it shall be discovered that Christ is first and that man's sociology is last. Now, if we do not consider the whole sweep of this narrative, we're liable to miss the point. And many commentators, I believe, have done just that. There are great and honored names among Bible teachers who have written that this parable teaches the wisdom of making no bargains with the Lord. We enter into his service and we trust him to do whatever he wants to do, knowing that he is always right. We joyously anticipate the evening and know that he will be generous. And those who work the entire day have the joy of having worked for him all day. Now, I know personally that this is true. The Lord gave me the inestimable advantage of having known from childhood that I was called to serve him. I have recounted elsewhere how, when asked on my fifth birthday what I was going to do when I grew up, I answered that I was going to preach. I have never in my life had any other thought and have never swerved from that goal. I know the Lord well enough to be sure that if he saves someone at the age of 70 and allows that one to labor for a year or two and then gives him as much reward as I would obtain, I have no complaint whatsoever to make. It is so wonderful to have lived with him long enough to be certain that he does all things well. Many illustrations which could be used to show that someone coming late in life may do far better and far more than someone who has spent his entire life at the work. This is true in many fields. From the classics, we have the story of Cincinnatus, for whom our city of Cincinnati is named. In 458 BC, according to tradition, when Lucius Minucius was besieged by the Aequi on Mount Algidus, Cincinnatus, although over 70, was called from his fields where he was plowing to be the dictator of the Roman forces. He defeated the Aequi, freed Minucius, resigned his dictatorship after 16 days, and returned to his plow. Moreover, he accomplished what other generals had tried and tried to do and had failed miserably. We also can imagine cases where a man comes late to a task and does a much better job than those who've labored long at it. A specialist may be called to see a patient 
whose doctor has had his case for months, and the specialist may cure the man in a week. A Paul can come to the apostleship long after the twelve, and may do more than all of them combined. Now we can multiply instances of this type as long as we like, but we've still failed to reach the heart of the parable. We may come to it, I think, by analyzing what Christ said to Peter. When the Lord answered Peter's inquiry, what shall we have? He spoke in terms of the apostles' future place in the kingdom, ruling over Israel. But at once he said that all who had left anything for him would receive a hundredfold. The Jews are those who worked from the first hour, for these people were called to labor for him from the dawning. They agreed to a covenant and were promised certain rewards. There was no place for us, the Gentiles, who were standing idly in the marketplaces of the world, godless, hopeless, and Christless, as we are told in the epistles. And yet the Gentiles were called into the faith of God at the eleventh hour and were upgraded to an equality with the children of Israel. To us has been given a position equal to that of the ancient people. The mighty ones of the ancient covenant are paraded before us in the 11th of Hebrews, and yet the chapter ends with these words, and all these, though well attested by their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had foreseen something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now it was for this reason that those who had labored since morning light were so disturbed because those who came at the eleventh hour were given a position equal to theirs. The Reverend F. W. Aveling comments on this as follows. The Jews, like many others who have special advantages, forgot that election to privilege means election to responsibility. Christianity is a marvelous leveler, upwards. And with one word, Jesus leveled up the Gentiles to the same privileges as the Jews in the Christian church. We, the Goy, became equal with the prophets. Now this, the Hebrew mind did not relish. It paid but little heed to the glorious promises of Isaiah, showing that the heathen world, the Goyim, would come into the fold through Messiah's influence. And it fostered the carnal spirit of expecting temporal blessing for spiritual excellence. The quintessence of this Jewish feeling is expressed in that most Hebrew of all the Proverbs, He that giveth to the poor lendeth to the Lord, and he will repay. But again, we would miss the main lesson of the parable if we stopped with this great truth. For there are two other truths to consider. The first of these is the Lord's condemnation of what he calls the evil eye. Those who had worked in the vineyard from early morning were envious of those who came late and who received as much as they did. The revision translates it, Do you begrudge my generosity? The King James Version stays with the literal Greek and gives us a thought that is more complete. The literal words are, Is thine eye evil because I am good? The evil eye is the envious eye. George Buttrick has an excellent paragraph on this truth. He writes, The verse, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, does not mean that God is a God of capricious whim and fiat mind. It means that he has his own criteria, 
which we in mortal sight and selfish aim cannot comprehend. Dimly we see the criteria. They are the demands on God of his own love, not the dreariness of man's legal quid pro quo. And thus the rewards of God ought to enlist our glad assent, not our murmuring. Why did the earlier workers not rejoice that the man who had waited long in the marketplace was now at peace with money to take home to his family? Why did not the elder brother rejoice that the prodigal was now restored, set free from the rags and hunger of a far country? Oh, if only we had but a tincture of God's love, would we not be glad that the lost sheep is safe in the fold, delivered from briars and wolves? The lovelessness of the long-term workers is here set in contrast with the love of God. Oh, how hard the doctrine of merit dies. How proud we are of our works. How blindly we offer our legalities in protest against God's free grace. How loveless we are towards the sinner. This story is the gospel warrant for a great word that was written to the Ephesians, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet the workers who put in the whole day were envious of the superior fortune of their fellow laborers. They had made their own bargain and they got their wages, and thus everything between them and the employer was just and right. But then they envied the latecomers because they received more than simple justice. It was the very generosity of the employer, his lavish grace, that aroused their envy. He states it simply, their eye was evil because he was good. This was the fault that he saw in them, and for which he judges them so severely. They could not tolerate that he should fill someone else's cup to overflowing, even though he had poured into their cup with a just and even hand. Envy. Envy is described in the Proverbs as the rottenness of the bones. We are told that wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming, but who is able to stand before envy? Where envying and strife are, jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be confusion, disorder, and every vile practice. Envy is a great sorrow for the welfare of our neighbor. Now, when we consider these truths, it's well that we bow and repeat from the inmost heart the words of the Anglican prayer book, from envy, hatred, and malice, and all uncharitableness, good Lord, deliver us. But now we turn to the last great lesson of this parable. We must never serve the Lord for reward. It's true that the Bible teaches that those who serve the Lord well will receive from him a reward. But we're unable to discern whether any man is serving the Lord well. It's possible for us to see open sin in a life and to recognize complete departure from scriptural principles. But we are not able to see into the heart of any individual and know what goes on there. The ways of God are inscrutable, past finding out. We cannot know who will receive a reward and for what the reward will be given. Paul tells us in the Philippian letter that he had a great desire to possess a reward at the time of the resurrection from the dead. 
But he continues, it must not be thought that I already have it in my hand or that I'm lacking nothing, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. But during the course of his Christian life, he continues, I do not consider myself to have arrived, but I do concentrate on this. I leave the past behind and with hands outstretched to whatever lies ahead, I go straight for the goal the reward being the upward call of God in Christ. Now, when this is understood, it is the death of the saccharine religion of self-delusion that is found outside Christianity in the writings of cult leaders and inside Christianity in the writings of the middle-of-the-road liberals. This lavish excess of extravagant effusion brings God down to the place where he is the servant of the one who deigns to follow him and results in the cloying propositions of religious business success. This idea has even slopped over into some very fundamental circles where Christian laymen meet with the idea that a bank balance is a sure mark of God's approval. Oh, the believer who has understood the edges of the grace of God must always look beyond this. The aim and the end of life is God himself. This is what Paul meant when he wrote, Every advantage I had gained, I considered lost for Christ's sake. Yes, and I look upon everything as loss compared with the overwhelming gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I did in actual fact suffer the loss of everything but I considered it useless rubbish compared with being able to win Christ. For now, my place is in him, and I'm not dependent upon any of the self-achieved righteousness of the law. God has given me the genuine righteousness which comes from faith in Christ. How changed are my ambitions. Now I long to know Christ and the power shown by his resurrection. Now I long to share his sufferings, even to die as he died, so that I might lay hold of the resurrection from among the dead. Some may call Frederick William Faber a mystic, but in one of his hymns, he has summed up the spiritual objectivity of the life that is ours in Christ. He wrote, My God, how wonderful thou art, thy majesty how bright, how beautiful thy mercy seat in depths of burning light. How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be, thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awful purity. Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. Yet I may love thee too, O Lord, almighty as thou art, for thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. No earthly father loves like thee, no mother e'er so mild, bears and forbears as thou hast done with me, thy sinful child. Father of Jesus, love's reward, what rapture will it be, prostrate before thy throne to lie, and gaze and gaze on thee. Now here is the end and the aim, the goal and the purpose, the race and the prize of the Christian life. 
It matters little whether we came at the hour of sunrise or in the cool of the evening, if, when we have been brought by his love, we look upon him and want him only. Whether we come early or late, we find ourselves first because we are centered in him. Then, whether the world has recognized us or not, we know that we, the Lord and I, have recognized each other and have looked at each other. His gaze has reached the depths of my soul, and my gaze has discovered that he loves me, and each is satisfied with the other. And then, no matter how the world ranks the believer in time or in quality, we know that we now have and possess that which both, both Christ and I call first. I have him and he has me. Do you have him? And does he have you? Lord, we pray thee that we may look upon thee and see thee and long to live and work for thee, not caring about what the world thinks as long as we have thy smile. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Is your service for God tainted by selfish ambition and wrong motives, or do you seek to put the needs of others before yourself and serve God every day with a loving, grateful heart? If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled, How God Evaluates Men. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, How God Evaluates Men, or simply ask for message number Q120. We would also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled, First Things First. This six-chapter booklet is a study on Christian priorities. If we are to live a successful Christian life, then what are the most important concepts and priorities we need to grasp concerning God, His Word, the Lordship of Christ, witnessing fellowship and repentance? This booklet can easily be read in a short amount of time, but its teachings and applications will last a lifetime. Ask for your complimentary copy of First Things First when you call or write. When you call or write, you may also request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's booklets and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is the radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by we seek to provide contemporary christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place if you would like more information on the alliance of confessing evangelicals or if you would like to support and further our work Contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. 
visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.